Civil society plays a vital role in functioning democracies by holding governments accountable for their actions and protecting human rights. And, especially in the case of Taiwan, NGOs are also able to carry out international outreach in the absence of formal diplomatic relations. Today we will talk with Annie Huang to learn more about what sets Taiwanese civil society apart and the challenges that NGOs face when making transnational connections. So, let's get into it. Hello everyone and welcome to Taiwan Salon, the Global Taiwan Institute's cultural policy and soft power podcast. My name is Adrian Wu, the host of Taiwan Salon and a research associate at GTI. And I'm Jonah Landsman, GTI's 2023 Yahui Cho Summer Fellow. Today we are joined by Annie Huang, the regional project leader for Greenpeace East Asia and the owner of The Latent, a direct trade coffee shop in Taipei. Prior to working at Greenpeace, Annie was the acting director at Amnesty International for two years, during which she worked with local LGBTQ organizations to push through the legalization of same-sex marriage. All right, so Taiwan's vibrant civil society is often cited as a unique aspect of Taiwanese culture that not only sets Taiwan apart from China, but also showcases Taiwan's commitment to protecting human rights and holding the government accountable to its citizens. So based on your own experience as an activist and also working for Amnesty and Greenpeace, how would you characterize Taiwanese civil society? I think uh, if any one of you guys you know, have ever been to Taiwan, you would really feel the vivid you know, of the city, of the, you know, the friendliness of the people. So um, Taiwanese civil society is actually super friendly, just like you guys could feel on the street. And, but at the same time, people are super willing to support. So whichever it's human rights movement, environmental movement, as long as they learn it and they think it's important, uh, people are really you know, supporting this. And that's why uh, for, for nonprofit organizations or for even legislators, they are willing to push forward some progressive issues or have the, the government be accountable. The, the possibility of make it happen is actually, from my perspective, is actually very big. Yeah, so just to make it really short, I would say Taiwanese civil society is like very supportive and you know very encouraging for for people who are willing to make things changes. Cool. So you talk about this friendliness present in Taiwanese civil society. In addition to that, do you think that there's any aspects of Taiwanese civil society that make it really unique or make it stand out from the rest of the region, the rest of the world? Yeah, so I think definitely this friendliness, like people, you know, not just like friendly to to each other, but they are welcome to all kinds of different diversities or, or differences. You know, all kinds of religions are welcome to he, to be here and all kinds of cultures are welcome to really locate in the country, in Taiwan. So this kind of uh, friendliness actually makes things very diverse and very welcoming. And, and that's why many things could really, you know, not just happen, but really happen on the ground. So yeah, I think that's very, uh, that's something super unique, um, not just in the region, but also in the world. According to Annie, providing a space where different communities can interact is another important way to mobilize the public and create connections. I started this fair trade coffee shop uh, about nine years ago. Uh, it's about 10 years already, so yay, it's alive. 
So the coffee shop is there. It's right around National Taiwan University. So there's lots of scholars or students, and you know, good good foods around、uh, because it's it's actually a, a bit like college town over there. So I think the main reason that I started this coffee shop is not because I you know it's I'm not I'm never the kind of girl like oh there's this dream I want to have a coffee shop of my own in one day. No, that's that's definitely not my what I was dreaming of. But what I wanted to do is to have this coffee shop as a hub. That people who's interested to talk about issues, who who has you know, who, who who wants to gather together to talk about human rights or environmental issues or even indigenous people's situations, they are.、Uh, this is the place, and also of course we serve fair trade coffee, direct trade coffee. I've been working with farmers in Haiti, in Ethiopia, in Kenya. So you know, poverty issues or human trafficking issues could be talked. Not just in the coffee shop. It's not gonna be just talking, but we're actually doing something. So yeah, so having this coffee shop is actually a very precious experiences for me that I got to learn the market. You know, first thing you have to survive the coffee shop, so you have to learn the market. Like I always tell people who drink coffee are very different from from people who cares about you know human rights, NGOs, and environment. So if there's a stay. I could have, I could shift this big groups of coffee drinker a little bit closer, or even into this group of、um, caring people, like those people on real, real、um, civil society.、Um, then that's gonna be a way bigger pool than we are right now. And so far, what's exciting is I do see this is happening.、Um, like、uh, the coffee shop is not big, but but this coffee shop did attract students. Scholars, researchers, they could help events. There's、uh, movie festivals happening in the coffee shop. They could even bring in exhibitions,、uh, bring in stories in Indonesia or or other nonprofit would help events in the coffee shop. Yeah, so so I could see you know this civil society really going on in the city, not just in my coffee shop, but around the area, and I could really feel. Uh, those are the group of people who cares about the world, who cares about the people, who cares about you know making world a, the world a better place to live. Sounds naive, but it is happening in front of my face. There were students, you know, that met me when they're in freshman years, and right now there are professors, and they were still coming to my coffee shop and talk about oh what they were. Eight nine years ago, they got a different girlfriend, and it's a, it's it's right now their wife, blah blah blah. So so I can see those changes happen in an individual person, but also, you know, just in the area. Yeah, so that's actually very, I would say, very nutritious for myself as a person, but also, I could see activists, movements, civil societies. It's like really living in the city. Yeah, no, I mean that's really great, and I I think you. You really touched on what is really important about, you know, connecting to the society. But I think that you've been talking a lot about sort of, you know, connecting to the community and kind of seeing the changes that are being made. Do you feel like that sometimes gets lost when you work in a bigger international nonprofit? Do you think that some of these nonprofits that are more international have a harder time connecting? To the Taiwanese civil society or to other activists in Taiwan, or do you feel like it, it meshes pretty well together? 
Yeah, that's a very very good question. It is. I mean, a big international organization like you know what I worked before in Amnesty or right now in, in Greenpeace. Those are huge groups, not just working in Taiwan or in a region. Uh, so sometimes they could be a bit in the sky. It's not, they're not on the ground. Sometimes, so that's actually make people you know who work there easier to to just forget what's really going on uh, in in the society, what's really going on to the people. Uh, on the ground, so I would say normally we could see things in three different ways. One is from the perspective of international organization, and then local groups like local organization, local activists. They're trying super hard. They've been working, you know, in those local NGOs for thirty or forty years. Things are, you know, really difficult in front of them. Um, and then there's Civil society, like normal people who kind of care of the questions, or problems, or issues, they kind of be supportive. They will go, you know, to the to LGBTI parade, but they're not necessarily a real activist. So, if you see those three big groups of people, you could really feel the real activists are actually more in the local organization ones, and the international organization. They used to be. Like you know, they could be a, a digital marketing uh, people working there. They could be an IT people working there.、Uh, the real campaigners are actually they have to work on you know women in Southeast uh, South uh, South America. They have to work on、uh, refugees in in other part of Asia. But then when they Come back to Taiwanese real local issues. They might not be that familiar, or they're not, they they're not that into the situation to compare with those local activists. So there's definitely distance.、Um, and yeah, so so it's not a bad thing, I would say.、Uh, but the, the question is, how do you、uh, balance, or how do you see the civil society could be changed by those three spectrum? Like for example, when When NGOs, they are pretty, you know, they're more well off, so they could, you know, have more money on on digital marketings. So you could see Facebook posts from Greenpeace a lot, from Amnesty a lot. But then it kind of cover, it kind of, you know, exceed. So people would not see those ads from from local groups because they just they just not wealthy enough to to put so much so much money on that. So that's kind of. Create a weird atmosphere. Yeah. So, so, but I, I would say it's all part of life. It's all part of life, right? I think、uh, it's good that right now I could see those two big groups, not just two, but all these international organizations see、uh, the importance of working on the ground. So、um, they will work closer to local groups. They would start. Uh, working with、um, local activists, but at the same time bringing international voices,、uh, and how do they,、uh, as an international organization, do、uh, put into more values into the local movements? I think that's、uh, the question, and that could、uh, that was actually what happened in 2018 and、uh, 2018 and 19 when the、uh, when when Taiwan passed same-sex marriage. That was actually what happened. Like international groups, they bring in. International voices to pressure the government all together with the local activists,、um, so that things could really work together and the movement could really put things forward. Thank you, and it's it's really amazing to hear how that coffee shop has allowed you to really connect with the grassroots nonprofit scene in Taipei, and it I think emphasizes the importance, like you said, of local NGOs that are really in touch with the community. Also, you just talked about that 2018. Same-sex marriage law. 
And that leads us perfectly into our next question, which was, although Taiwan did pass that law, and it's obviously very progressive, especially for East Asia, the question of same-sex marriage was actually initially vetoed in a 2018 Taiwanese referendum. Do you think you could talk a little bit about that gap between the Taiwanese public opinion and the government's decision on that matter? So that's what uh, come back. I could come back to my, you know, the very first answer uh, about you know Taiwanese diversity. Like we are, you know, all kinds of opinions are welcome, and uh, all kind of talks could happen on the street. And the reality is, when actually there are, you know, more than sixty percent of Taiwanese citizens are. I'm not going to say they're elder, but <laughs> they're like, you know, like more than 50 years old and they could, you know, take over over half of the vote in every elections. You could actually see that political decisions are actually uh, made by those elders. And then actually, I think it's it's probably a bit similar to, to, to the U.S., like younger generations that make it makes them like, oh, but what's you know it doesn't matter with my votes anyway because like we don't have that many of the people so so younger generation might be less motivated to to go vote so it's just kmt and dpp so two parties it's like only two options it's either white or black when the two parties they have these competitions happen you know you have to just choose from these two there's no other options and when one is supporting equal marriage and the other is not it doesn't matter What's the value? What's the issue we're talking about? If what's the human rights we're talking about? It's just about the party. If I like the party or I don't like the party. Um, so in 2018, it is a setback for, for the human rights movement. There's about five millions or six millions of people devote the referendum and lots of, you know, LGBTI people, they cry, they, they hate themselves, they hate Taiwan, they feel discriminated like even when they're standing on the street they you know they will tell me they just feel there are millions of people hate them staying in Taiwan so that's how harmful it is for the movement but then you could actually see then the movement movement starts to rise again because they're like oh no it is not the reality it is not the future we want so in, like more activists stands up and their legislators stands up as well. And I think the good thing is in 2017, we did actually have this constitutional law. They did explain clearly that LGBTI's rights are actually uh, more important uh, than everything. So, so yeah, so that constitution, our constitutional system did protect this equal marriage existence. So that's why in 2019, uh, we could still push things forward. But just to come back to, to the public opinion um, that we could see in 2018, you can see the gap you know, between generations, between parties. There's only like 10% of Taiwanese are, are, are Christians. But those 10% of Christians, they could spread out those rumors, those fake news about, about LGBTI groups, about same-sex marriage, so then elder, elder, when they only see, you know, like their different posts from lying and like they don't really see what's really, uh, what's the reality, what's the facts, uh, they got, you know, they just make the wrong decision. Yeah, so you can see the gap uh, and you can also learn 
those disinformation really affects the, the, the election. So I would say it's uh, in 2018, the referendum is a, a, a big lesson for, for us as an activist or as an NGO workers that if we want to keep pushing for, for, for the right things to happen, uh, those are you know the gener- generation gaps and also di- disinformation. Uh, those are something we need to really focus on. Otherwise, uh, it will really it will make it just even harder to 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 win the campaign. It's really tough to kind of figure out how to address that, and it's really great to see that the government is kind of you know taking that in hand. Due to Taipei's limited capacity for formal diplomatic engagement. Taiwanese NGOs are also an essential form of international outreach. So what are some opportunities and challenges that arise from this? I would definitely say the challenges more than opportunities. As, as everybody knows, you know, Taiwan is not part of United Nations, and we kind of very often be left out in many international conference or, or, or scenario and we were not we just not invited because we are not a country in many international relations way to see it. I, I vividly remember when I was in grad school in UC San Diego, there was this time there's this UN officers uh, were in the in our campus and they get, he gave a talk about women's rights uh, under United Nations work. And I was super excited. So after the after the talk, I went to talk to the guy, and then I was, you know, asking my questions. And then by the end, I was asking, "Oh, for any chance, there's internship opportunities for grad students that I could work with you guys." And then he turned to me. He said, uh, "Are you having Taiwanese passport?" I'm like, yes, I do have Taiwan. I am a Taiwanese. And he said, oh, so then there's no way. So so that was like, wow, that was like uh, so direct, right? As a Taiwan, that, that's the only reason that I could not even just interning for, for the UN system. Yeah, so so uh, just coming back to the questions, uh, you can imagine it's actually frustrating um, for many Taiwanese young activists or you know young students when they're trying to be involved. Uh, to international world, to international work. But then, on the other hand, I would say for civil societies, uh, the opportunity is actually more than the official, I mean, like in, for, for to compare with our governmental works. And that's actually the window uh, for Taiwan to stand up in international, international conferences or international opportunities. The reason I say that is like, for example, like why Amnesty International or why Greenpeace or right now there's Doctors Without Borders, Reporters Without Borders, they're setting sections in Taiwan. It's because, you know, we have this unique cultures and we have this movements happening. Call us a country or not, this is our happening in this place, right? So, so and also we got voices to, to, to bring I would say, for example, ever since we passed our same-sex uh, marriage, we actually stand out in many of the international scenario to talk about why it is important to pass the law to protect those LGBTI groups and how do we help you know, other countries in the region like Japan or Korea or Thailand or Indonesia or Philippines. We could give some experiences, just share or also give some suggestions and also you know, help help them analyze their constitutional system and to see what's the gap between 
their status quo and how they're going to reach uh, those human rights status in the future. So yeah, we could actually bring a lot to the table, uh, but then it's just like even the opportunities are not as many as other countries in the world. But I would say civil society is the one. I mean, when I say civil society, I'm, I mean more like NGOs are the one that could actually bring in something to the international world right now to compare with uh, the government officials. Yeah, so that would be the opportunities one. And I do think our uh, our colleagues, you know, our fellows, our, our activists are are working hard on that. Like we don't we don't be shy. We 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 don't care if we're a country or not. If we recognize us or not. We're just trying to attend to all these conferences or meetings and just to speak out. This is Taiwan, and this is what we had, and this is what we could bring in. Yeah. So 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 things like that. It has been happening. In terms of making those international connections, have you found that there are any specific topics or? regions where Taiwanese NGOs have been particularly successful in making connections? And then on the flip side, are there topics or regions where Taiwanese NGOs particularly struggle? Yeah, I think I would say this same-sex marriage is something we are successfully bringing to the region, to other places in the regions and, and help them. And so we are in part of many regional or international movements uh, in this uh, topic. And other than that, uh, I would say we are still, honestly, we are still uh, a little bit slow in some of the the topic. For example, like death penalty issues. Uh, I think our I think there's a culture thing that people are still trying to learn, or not not even trying, but they are they should be learning <laughs> what real human rights mean. Not just like we just because I think it's Chinese culture. There's this Bao Qingtian as a I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. He was a judge and he would just kill all the bad guys so people feel good. Yeah, all the bad guys die. Yeah, we watched that since we were little. Yeah, but it, it shouldn't be that way, right? So so that's something very different. The, the human rights, the theory of human rights is different from the Chinese culture. So how do we flip it? And so I would say education does matter. And that's actually what I was really focused on either uh, five years ago when I was in Amnesty. I was working on human rights education in elementary school, in middle schools. Uh, it's not just we're pushing campaign to the government, but actually we need the change from the roots, from younger generations, from students to really learn what is human rights. Uh, it's very different from Confucianism. It's very different uh, from 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 ethics. It's, it's a theory and that's international law that's protecting every single people's rights. Yeah, so that's something I was working, I was really uh, focusing on. And right now, I'm, as long as, since I was working in Greenpeace, I'm also working on uh, environmental rights and also climate change, pushing educations happening really in the schools, in the campus, uh, not just for the college entrance exam, but also for, for, for younger generation to learn what's crucial for this country to improve. How do we be even better? How do we follow up from those? It's not just like a Western theory, but it's something should be rooted in Asia as well. Yeah, so so yeah, I think that there's still a lot to learn, a lot to do. And yeah, so that's why I would say like 
British consul, a lot of foreign officers, uh, foreign officers when they're based in Taiwan, they will find, oh, it's uh, Taiwan is super friendly and people are super welcoming and people people are nice. Uh, but then there's a slightly different what people care and what people believe is different from what we call a, a progressive values. Uh, so yeah, so there's still something to do. I mean, we've been talking about how Taiwan can help regionally and how it can kind of be a hub um, in the Asia Pacific. Um, but do you think that Taiwan civil society outreach has also been limited by pressure from the PRC? That's a, that's a hard question, but the answer, short answer is, of course, there are pressure. There is pressure, um, uh, but I also would think it's actually not that much for uh, for civil society. For Taiwanese government, there might be held a lot of pressure from PRC, but for civil society, because we are, <laughs> to use the Hong Kongese word term, we are like water, right? Civil society, we could actually, you know, go everywhere and it's, there's no rule. So we could feel, we could just like try to sneak into different conferences and just try to uh, speak up. Um, yeah. As long as we don't, you know, it's not, the location is not in Hong Kong or China, I think. The civil society could actually do a lot, you know, if, there, if there's conference in Australia, there's conference in the U.S., uh, in Europe, even when we got the information, when we're invited, uh, we would just go. So, so yeah, the, the pressure's there, but civil society as an activist, we don't care. We're like, we're going to just go and talk about human rights. Yeah, so, so I think it's, 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 it's a way less pressures uh, to compare with the official government. Great. So as we close here, I'd like to turn the conversation toward what role the U.S. can play when it comes to aiding Taiwanese civil society. How do you think the U.S., either from the government or our civil society, can help Taiwanese civil society create more people-to-people ties? And then on top of that, should U.S.-Taiwan collaboration in the civil space focus more on bilateral or multilateral action? From from my experiences, I do see if you know, when there's this, well, there is actually lots of student exchange programs, college students exchange program or scholar exchange programs that Taiwanese youth or, or, or scholars or researchers, they got opportunities to, to go to the U.S. Um, to have the opportunity to learn or to exchange their thoughts there. Uh, so it's actually already happening. And uh, I'm sure you guys are, are, are familiar with all this as well. But I would still think we are... If there's more opportunity that the U.S. could always think of us, uh, what I'm saying is whenever there is conference or when there is international scenarios that should include everybody, like every country in the world, we would definitely hope we won't be left behind, either it's for civil society or for, for our, our, our president, I don't know, so, or for, for any youth representative, like we should always be involved. Yeah, so so a little story is I was I was applying for one of the program from the East, uh, from the federal government, the U.S. federal government, uh, a couple months ago, and I still see when I was trying to uh, there's this um, there's this area that I should I should pl- plug in uh, the country country's name. And, and it's like, so I roll down, it's not like typable, it's like you, you just choose. And there's still the, it, it still shows Taiwan province of China. 
<laughs> it still shows that. I'm like, oh my God, you guys should actually still check it. <laughs> so uh, this kind of thing still happens, but it could, well, for me, I kind of know it's not really the federal government. It's the system, the, the people who build the system that make it that way. Yeah. But if you could imagine if it's like, uh, if it's 20 years old, excited college students, they're super smart and they're willing to give and they're, they're trying to uh, involve with this exchange program. And then they figure, oh, we're still, for the U.S. government, we are still part of uh, Chinese province. That's kind of frustrating for them. So, yeah, so I would say, please treat us as equal as other countries. And you don't have to worry about we're, you know, not capable of because we are in many ways, very capable of standing up for issues, for for topics, for for international relations. Yeah, and we have people study in the U.S., study in the U.K., study in the Japan. We got smart people everywhere in Taiwan. So what we did is just the equal opportunities to stand with all other countries' representative and just to speak up as a very mature democracy country here so that's that's the only thing and either it's bilateral or multi-bilateral actions i would say i think it doesn't really matter but for i, I think we should start from bilateral first <laughs> yeah so because like for other country we have other relationships with them uh, but right now i would say especially right now in this uh, timing the, the relationship, either the, the civil society's relationship with the U.S. government or our governments, um, you know, like between the governments are very crucial. The bilateral relationships is uh, important that we work together either just to push the democracy movements forward, human rights movement forwards, yeah, so, or just anti-war movements. I think that's, that's something we are looking for more uh, involved, yeah. Yeah, so so I'm happy like you guys have this interview with me. Uh, although I'm not, you know, I'm not a professor, I'm not a super scholar, but uh, I have some civil society experiences, and I have this coffee shop. So I think this is more this intervention. This interview is more like the soft topic, <laughs> the soft way. I think it's good to get opinions from people that are actually working on the ground and kind of seeing how these social movements and trends play out. Like you're talking about the distance, if we feel too distanced from it, then you know it's harder for us to make change, I think. So, so thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. From the interview today, it's clear that while Taiwan is home to a vibrant civil society, there are still many challenges that that vibrant society faces when trying to make connections abroad. Thank you so much to Annie for joining us and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. This podcast was made possible in part by the Taiwan Academy Spotlight Taiwan Grant. Production assistance is from Adrian Wu, Jonah Landsman, and Kristen Chang. Thank you also to our staff and interns for your support in making this episode possible. Intro and background music is by I'm Difficult, Bozhir Jicha Shabnu. The Global Taiwan Institute is a 501c3 think tank located in Washington, D.C. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org, where you can find information about our Global Taiwan Brief and our frequent public seminars. You can also listen to more episodes of Taiwan Salon on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts, as well as on our website's podcast page. Thank you for listening, and until next time.